1: Things just keep getting more and more interesting as we go. And I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, sometimes interesting is almost walking hand-in-hand hand with scary. Just because there, there's such craziness. And, I mean, the craziness can take the, ter- the the form of the, you know, kind of cognitive dissonance you see when, oh, I don't know, you know, President Biden meets with, uh, with uh, what's his name, uh, Justin Trudeau up in Canada for, you know, a climate change emergency and, how big of is the climate crisis? Well, it's so big that for the five-minute ride we had to make from wherever they started to the palace, uh, you know, it was a 75-vehicle convoy racing at full speed with armored personnel carriers and and uh, ambulances. And, you know, it's just like, yeah, if, you, if, if there was really a climate crisis, guys, uh, caused by people burning fossil fuels, I think you might ease up a little bit. I'm not saying they would take skateboards, but they would at least, you know, try to be doing something to... You know, stop uh, stop expanding their carbon footprint. But I guess it's you know different rules for me than there are for thee, and and that's uh, I guess to be expected. Also, again, can't decide whether is this is this scary or is this a good thing. China and Russia have apparently uh, come together for um they they find some common ground, and this is very scary to people at the uh, top of the chain in in the, the U.S. government. Which can't decide, okay, is, is Russia such a threat that, you know, we have to, you know, what were they saying? They had weaponized carbon. They had weaponized hydrocarbons, you know, to the point that they're this energy giant that's, that's holding the world in a stranglehold because of their vast energy reserves. But at the same time, we're supposed to, you know, believe, well, they're just really a colony of China now, you know. <laughs> oh, they're just a paper tiger. And I guess the, the point here is it's propaganda. You know, I, I don't know who's going to end up on the right side of history. I think there's good reason to distrust every major government in the world today just because the very nature of government is force. But the more we get this duplicitous, well, they're the strongest, biggest threat in the world, and ah, they're just, you know, they're losing their butts in a place called Ukraine. You know, speaking of Russia, it's, it just seems like uh, there, there's a lot of casting about what will people believe, what will they do. And, and I honestly believe a lot of it is intended to scare us. And, and I'm going to see, share some stuff with you today that I think is legit scary and it has nothing to do with the governments of the world or nothing to do with political manipulation here and there. In fact, the scariest thing that uh, recently happened was last week when we dodged one of the biggest, uh, I got to choose my words carefully here, um, we dod. I'm just going to say, it. we dodged the biggest bitch slap that uh, our solar system could, could hand out to us and that is uh, a uh, chromatic mass ejection from the sun. Scary, scary stuff. Yeah, what are you going to do about that? Well, we'll pass another law. The sun has to listen when we pass a law. No. But before I go down that road, because again, my my goal here is not to make you scared or not to add to your anxiety. Lord knows we have enough of that going on. But I want to share with you a commentary from Daisy Luther. She is the organic prepper. She is a fountain of wisdom and, uh, and good, hard-won, applied knowledge. A lot of this she's applied herself. But she offers some very welcome encouragement on how, in spite of things feeling like they're spiraling out of control and leaving us wondering, you know, what's to come next? What's the next shoe that's going to drop? Daisy says, here's how I know you'll survive this. She says, there's a survival secret that not a lot of people talk about, and it's how I know that more than likely... You're going to survive whatever's coming at us next. She says it's easy to get swept away by the doom and gloom and the pending disaster of the moment. At times like this, it feels like we have annihilation bearing down on us from every angle. Our economy is almost kaput. Nuclear powers like Russia and China aren't our biggest fans, and well, civil war could erupt at any moment. And that doesn't even take into account random natural disasters like wildfires and hurricanes or horrific accidents like the train derailment in Ohio. She says it's enough to make you wonder how on earth you're going to manage to live through what's coming. Well, suddenly there's an avalanche of overwhelm and it's the kinds of questions that keep preppers up at night. Do you have enough supplies? Can you trust your group? Are you really ready? What if you forgot something vital? How can you get more money to get prepped? What if, what if, what if? Well, she says, let me stop you right there. Here's the spoiler. You're probably going to survive it. She says, I have a lot of of evidence supporting that, but here's what you need to consider when you feel like you're not going to make it. First of all, she says, you need to remember that you come from a long line of survivors. It's quite literally in your blood. If your ancestors had not survived for dozens of generations, you wouldn't be here. It's not enough to have simply reproduced. Someone had to get the next generation to adulthood so that they too could procreate. So while probably, you know, some died during horrible events in the past, plenty did not. Your ancestors survived it all. She says they survived big things like plagues and wars, the Great Depression, the threat of annihilation from various enemies and natural disasters during times we couldn't predict them and warn people, you know, using the news. They've survived smaller things like floods, hurricanes, the savings and loan crisis, childhood diseases, the high price of gas bad storms, hyperinflation, accidents, and, of course, governments running amok. So enough of your ancestors got through such events that you are here, alive, well, and fretting about your future. So looking to the past, Daisy says, you will see you have everything within you to survive what's coming for us. Survival is in your blood and in your bones. You, my friend, are the result of thousands of years of overcoming obstacles. You come from a line of people who avoided being killed by enemies, marriages, wars, pestilence, and love. You are genetically wired for survival. Next, she points out, people regularly survive horrible events. She says another thing that is that people often survive these events. While some people do succumb to disaster, grief, or ill fortune, most people do not. So let's look at some recent history. Sure, we can look back and say 21 million people died from the Spanish flu, but in 1900, 18 years before that event, the population of the world was 1.6 billion people. So you could roughly extrapolate from it that 1.1 billion 579 million people survived it. And that's pretty decent odds, right? What about the Great Depression? The paper suggests that the only cause of mortality that increased was suicide. And here's another article that says the life expectancy of people actually increased during that time. In fact, it says that more people live longer during times of economic downturn, referencing the paper mentioned previously. So around 100,000 people died during the Balkan War. More than 2 million had to flee their homes to survive. The population of that area was about 4 million people. So again, while that death toll was horrific, far more people survived than did not. And she says, I'm not sharing any of this to belittle horrendous things that have occurred throughout history. Any death that comes from a disaster or a war or a genocide or economic catastrophe is a terrible thing. But the fact is that more people live through terrible events than succumb to them. She also reminds us that some of it is out of your hands. All of this is why we prep. We want to put ourselves firmly on the side of those who make it through to the other side. We want our families to suffer less from terrible events. But even people who've never heard of prepping, who've never stacked up a five-gallon bucket full of food, and who haven't read any books or articles about the topic, still have a decent chance of making it through. Now, of course, some things are completely out of our hands. If you're at ground zero when a nuke hits, no amount of preparation is going to save you. Same thing goes for a terrible accident at the workplace or a collision with a drunk driver. If there's an extinction-level event like a giant meteor, we're all done. Sometimes your ticket gets punched, and it's your time. But she says there are also personal circumstances that can prevent survival, such as reliance on daily medication or equipment. And again, this is largely out of our hands, and there's just so much that we can do about it. She says we prepare to give ourselves the best odds possible, and we're right to do so. Daisy says I feel much better knowing I have skills and supplies put back that just might give me an edge during hard times. I will always be glad that I've taught my children vital prepper knowledge. Maybe we won't live through it but find a way to thrive in doing so. Or maybe we won't just live through it, but find a way to thrive while we're doing it. So survival is how we're wired. Even silly people are wired for survival. Things might get very, very hard. The world could change dramatically. And for the worst, we may wonder how on earth we're going to do it if we lose our house, our car, our way of life, our stability. By the way, she says, I've been there. And you know what? That'll really suck if it happens. But eventually we'll come out on the other side, and even while things are bad, We'll love people. We'll find reasons to laugh. We'll enjoy whatever it is we're eating. We will do our best to keep in touch with the things that make us human. We need to focus on those simple joys instead of focusing on what we've lost. We just have to keep going. And if we do, we will probably survive. So the point is you're going to make it. You got that? If you're wondering whether or not you're going to be able to survive all this, you know what? You probably are. The statistics are in your favor. You were born to be resilient. So you need to just keep on doing the best that you can. Prepare to the best of your ability, learn new skills to make it a little bit easier, be ready to adapt to your changing circumstances. Control what you can, let go of what you can't control, remember to find happiness wherever you can, and she says above all, don't forget who the heck you are. I really needed this. Maybe I'll explain this in a later show, but uh, this this week has been a it's been a doozy. But I'm really grateful for Daisy Luther's take.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout-out to my
1: sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com and tmcpnation.com. That is the Modern Conservative Podcast, my friend John Harvey. Now that I mention it, I need to have him back on the show again, just, just to get John's take on things. All right, so we have a lot to worry about right now. As, uh, as I mentioned in the last segment, uh, we just recently dodged one of the biggest potential dangers in many years. And I don't know if you were aware of this. I think most people are pretty fixated on politics. Wow, well, the danger of Trump getting arrested? That's not the one I'm talking about. I actually have a great article here from J.R. Dunn. This is from AmericanThinker.com. Dodging the Apocalypse. J.R. Dunn says, A little over a week ago on Sunday, March 12th, a near-catastrophic event occurred that could have wrecked the lives of everyone reading this. And this is a quote from the article that he's referencing and is linked to here. A powerful solar eruption on the far side of the sun still impacted Earth. A massive eruption of solar material known as a coronal mass ejection, or CME, was detected escaping from the sun at 11.36 p.m. EDT on March 12, 2023. The CME erupted from the side of sun opposite Earth. Now, What he's talking about was a replay of the Carrington event of September 1, 1859. Suddenly, British astronomer Richard Christian Carrington spotted what, was what he described as two patches of intensely bright and white light erupting from the sunspots. Five minutes later, the fireballs vanished, but within hours, their impact would be felt across the globe. That night, telegraph communications around the world began to fail. There were reports of sparks showering from telegraph machines, shocking operators and setting papers ablaze. All over the planet, colorful auroras illuminated the nighttime skies, glowing so brightly that the birds began to chirp, and laborers started their daily chores, believing the sun had begun rising. Some thought the end of the world was at hand. So what happened on March 12th was very similar to that night to that 1859 outburst, only worse. Early estimates suggest that this explosion was 10 to 100 times more powerful than the Carrington event of 1859. Now, thankfully, it was facing away from us and not facing directly at us. One serious difference, uh, of course, is that if it had been facing in our direction, if the Earth had borne the full brunt of that blast, we can scarcely imagine the results. And this, this is sobering to consider. It's likely that all operating electrical systems would have been immediately destroyed, same as the telegraph systems in 1859. I mean, come on, how many people had computers? How many people had phones? How many people had electric circuitry in in their cars, their vehicles, uh, their horses, (laughs) for that matter? Okay, you see the difference? Any active electronic instruments, possibly even those that happened to be shut down, would have been fried, transformed into useless hunks of metal, plastic, and silicon. The electrical and electronic networks, in other words, the net that formed the framework of the third millennial civilization, would have been annihilated by the sun, And once they were destroyed, all power would vanish, industry would grind to a halt, massive amounts of data, including almost all financial data, would simply disappear. All methods of communication beyond voice range would no longer exist. It wouldn't be a matter of waiting to be rescued by a government of any sort. Government would have shrunk to little more than a notion. The very tools on which relief and even recovery depend would have simply vanished. The consequences beggar the imagination. A new dark age would have been the best option to expect. So, the event did have some spectacular effects, like Aurora seen much further south than usual. And again, keep in mind, it was facing away from us. For some hours, radio transmission was down above the Arctic Circle, globally. Oddly enough, AT itself may well have been affected. The author says, That uh, Sunday night, I was on duty, as I usually am, and just shutting things down when the wavefront of this thing struck the Earth a little after 1130. He says, my PC immediately slowed down. Certain functions started acting iffy. While putting in the final graphics, I soon learned that they wouldn't insert and that the entire graphics system was useless. After a little work, I came up with a plausible hack that I thought would cover things, only to learn the next day that the server was down and not loading any scheduled material. It took AT's excellent tech team several hours to straighten this out. Now, the point is, very little has been made of this. If you've noticed, the media has blithely skipped past it. People who spew bloody froth over global warming and other bogosities didn't so much as twitch, possibly because this can't be blamed on capitalism or industry or on the GOP. Most of the populace is blissfully ignorant, much the same as a girl that uh, the author used to know who lived in Carlstadt, a small New Jersey town not far from New York City. A few weeks after she decamped in dubious circumstances for the wilds of central Jersey, He says, I learned from the papers, I was in real estate and kept an eye on things in the area, that a 500-pound aerial bomb had been found in a garage on Garden Street. It had been there since World War II, and over the decades it started to deteriorate, the TNT-sweating nitroglycerin, a highly explosive and extremely unstable compound that settled to the bottom of the casing. That thing could have gone off any time, and it would have leveled everything on that side of the street for 200 yards in each direction. The address of that garage was two two doors down from where that girl had been living. For over a year's time, she had spent her days in a rather nice little apartment without much thought or worries, while a few steps away, an instantaneous death slept without her ever knowing it. Now, he says, no doubt there are people out there who can't understand the CME any more than Mimi did, that bomb. But he says, events like this are valuable in that they lend perspective One of the major flaws of conservatism is its defeatism. If the leftism is apocalyptic, conservatism is chiliastic, always eager for that eschatological moment of doom and judgment. Doesn't matter what it is, China, Soros, Fentanyl, the cartels, CRT, transgenderism. Every time a cat falls from a tree, a mob suddenly pops out of hyperspace, ready equipped with sackcloth and ashes. The last day is always dawning, the seals ever breaking open. There's an entire school of paleoconservative thought devoted to utter utter defeatism calling itself the remnant. But more on that at another time. By the way, I believe in the remnant, so I'm part of that paleoconservative school of thought. But aside from that minor disagreement, I I like what he's saying here. There are always several doomsday of the moment, uh, doomsdays of the moment making the rounds. A recent example has been a revival of World War III due to the war in Ukraine that events will, at any moment, escalate until the silos open up and the missiles start flying. Well, he says, I have my doubts. If I were Vlad Putin and had spent the last year watching my much-vaunted tanks and fighter-bombers and hind-gunships falling apart on the front lines, I'd think twice about calling out my far more complex strategic missiles. Similarly, very informed people, scientists of the first rank, had long been predicting a return of the Carrington event for 50 years or more, as long as it had been understood what actually happened. They didn't know when it was coming. A century or maybe a century and a half? he says. my sympathies to those who insisted it would be 500 years. And they were right. It did come. But not in the manner expected. Because of a very simple aspect of celestial mechanics, the rotation of the sun, all that energy blew off into empty space and humanity did not go the way of the dinosaurs. The moral is, as a wise man once pointed out, if you see ten troubles coming down the road, you can be sure nine of them will run into a ditch before they get to you. So what about uh, what about our poor son, victimized by its very nature? Well, he says, to my understanding, this event just passed, resets the clock. Now, I disagree with him on this. I think we're still at risk. But he says, let's take some time to reflect on the bullet we just dodged and give thanks that uh, right now we're not this moment battling amid the dark ruins for the last can of baked beans. Life can be terrible, cruel, and harsh, but it can also be none of those things. So... Here's where I, I disagree mildly with, uh, with the author, uh, J.R. Dunn, and that is uh, I follow a, a website called Space Weather News. In fact, I'm linking to it in, in my show notes. You've heard me talk about Suspicious Observers' YouTube channel. If you go to Space Weather News, it's the same guy, Ben Davidson, who is a scientist and who I, I watch every day. He posts a little three-minute video every morning talking about here's what's happening with the sun, here's how it's affecting the climate of not just the Earth but every planet in our solar system. Now, you may not agree. In fact, you may be a scientist who says, I'm sorry, Brian, but this is just nonsense. And, uh, you know, there's no reason you should be watching this either. But I think Ben has a pretty good handle on what's happening and enough so that I'm willing to hear what he has to say and and consider it. Now, I'm I'm not going to say that, you know, he is a prophet of God and therefore what he says is, you know, going to come to pass. But the guy has been uh, shown to be right on a lot of stuff. And we're not out of the woods in terms of uh, what the sun might be sending our way. In fact, right now, just due to fluctuations in its electromagnetic field, people are more prone to uh, bad thinking, anxiety, seizures, and that sort of stuff. So never discount
0: the sun. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: So, yeah, I know, I don't don't want you worrying now every time you go outside. Okay, not only do I need sunscreen, but I need to make sure that every electronic in my house is in a Faraday cage and, you know, protected from uh, coronal mass ejection. I would really encourage you, though, if you get the chance to check out uh, spaceweathernews.com, you will find some very interesting uh, material for consideration. And, and, and the, po- the whole point is, there are catastrophes that happen on a fairly cyclical and regular basis. Uh, so what am I saying? Uh, climate change is real, but it is part of the natural order. How do we know that? Because it's happening on other planets that don't have man and don't have capitalism and don't have industry, and therefore, you know, it's not, uh, they're, they're planets where people aren't trying to reduce their carbon footprint because there are no people there. But the key that Ben always points to is people have always survived these events that have come. And by the way, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, Carrington event, you know, frying electronics and things like that. I know for most of human history, that hasn't really been a thing. How long have we really had electronics as a part of our day-to-day lives? You know, a little over a century. But there are other things that come into play. And things like polar shift. You know, if the poles reverse, that can lead to incredible um, crustal shift as well, which could lead to earthquakes and tidal waves and weather phenomenon, lightning, hail, and things like that. I mean, it's biblical sounding, which, I don't know, if you're a believer, it's like, oh, oh, okay, so, you know, maybe maybe the God of nature is, is one who works through natural laws and through through natural means. But all I'm saying is keep an eye open. Keep your mind open, but at the same time understand the chances are very good that you're going to survive this. It's just nice to have some awareness. All right, having said that, I'm ready to shift gears. I want to talk about something that caught my eye, and that is uh, breaking free of enemy-driven thinking. This is something I've had to do over my lifetime. I still sometimes have to struggle. And Okay, am I being enemy-driven in how I'm thinking about things? But I can say this from firsthand experience. If you're looking for increased peace of mind, that's one of the surest ways is to just break free of, of thinking in terms of who is my enemy? How do I define myself you know, by who, I, who or what I'm against? And Barry Brownstein has a marvelous essay on why liberalism, and, and we mean the good kind, classical liberalism, needs no enemies. He says in his instructive fable, political fable, The Awakening of Jennifer Van Arsdale, George Leaf writes, Liberalism is the one philosophy that requires no enemies. It minimizes conflict and calls upon people to resolve whatever problems arise through peaceful means. See, this is how we know we're not talking about progressivism, which is sometimes uh, labeled liberalism in our time. By liberalism, Barry writes, leaf refers to the 17th century movement that began to free individuals from entrenched interests, from the constraints of the powerful institutions that dominated their lives, the interests of monarchs and church leaders and guilds. Leif observes that human energy and ingenuity were freed to pursue commercial gains rather than confining them to furthering the interests of the rulers. Leif writes under liberalism, the only way for a person to improve his life is through cooperation with others. There is no place for the theft, exploitation, and domination that other systems invite. There is no need to make enemies. Barry Brownstein asks, is the growth of collectivism and the decline of liberalism why Americans are angrier than ever? With the anger, or with anger, he says, comes the need to blame. Many are certain their enemies are other Americans. And even while the stock market is close to all-time highs, all this hatred bodes poorly for the future. So what will happen in a bear market? Economic uncertainty will engender fear, creating more anger and a need for enemies authoritarian politi- politicians will exploit these human weaknesses just as a quick aside we saw this as clearly as could be during covid think about how unrestrained people were in their contempt for one another when it came to masks and this went both ways people who would berate you for not wearing a mask as well as people who would berate you for wearing one okay now magnify that on a scale where everybody is you know financially unsettled and insecure and uh, you can see, it It could get very ugly very quickly. Unhappy, miserable people tend to blame others for their sufferings, says Barry Brownstein. The frustrated, Eric Hoffer writes in The True Believer, oppressed by their shortcomings, blame their failure on existing restraints. Beware, Hoffer warns, when the oppressed turn to a mass movement for relief from their unhappiness. Power falls into the hands of those who have neither faith in nor respect for the individual. Wanting enemies to blame, the public gives totalitarians a point of entry. In 1926, Stalin reportedly said, There can be no greater pleasure in life than to choose one's enemy, inflict a terrible revenge on him, and then go quietly to bed. The Soviet system and its incentives brought out the worst in human nature. During Stalin's 1937-38 Great Terror to root out his enemies, Russian historian O.V. Klevnik, let me try this name again, Klevniuk reports 1.6 million people were arrested, 700,000 of them were shot, approximately 1,500 enemies killed every day. Enemies, by the way, in quotation marks. This murderous rampage was enabled by many ordinary Soviets who valued loyalty to Stalin and the state above all. Barry Brownstein says we fool ourselves if we think that the mindset that allowed Stalin to assume absolute power was unique to Russia at that time. When the need for enemies trumps morality, there are no do-overs. In The Road to Serfdom, F.A. Hayek writes, It almost seems to be a law of human nature that it's easier for people to agree on a negative program, on the hatred of an enemy, on the envy of those better off than on any positive task. Hayek explains totalitarians exploit our willingness to indulge in tribal hatred. He writes, The contrast between we and they... The common fight between those outside the group seems to be an essential ingredient in any creed which will solidly knit together a group for common action. It's consequently always employed by those who seek not merely support of a policy, but the unreserved allegiance of huge masses, End quote. So for insights into the enemy-seeking side of human nature, consider Anton Chekhov's character Dr. Kirilov in his short story, Enemies. Chekhov's story begins as Dr. Kirilov's only son is dying of diphtheria. An agitated, wealthy man, Aboghan, appears at Dr. Kirilov's home within moments of his son's death. Abagon pleads for the doctor to come at once to assist his critically ill wife. Initially, Kirilov, in deep distress, refuses. Abogan p- persists and the doctor relents. After an eight-mile carriage ride, they arrive at Abogan's home to find Abogan's wife has run off with her lover. She feigned illness as a ruse for her getaway. Angry with abogin, Kirilov is indignant that he's been made to play a part in some vulgar farce. Consumed by his anger, the doctor puts the death of his son and his grieving wife out of his mind. Kirilov hated and despised abogin, abogin's wife and her lover. The doctor's mind is filled with unjust and inhumanly cruel thoughts until his head ached. Chekhov wrote a firm conviction concerning those people took shape in Kirilov's mind. Reflecting on the nature of human grievances, Chekhov foretells, time will pass and Karolov's sorrow will pass, but that conviction, unjust and unworthy of the human heart, will not pass, but will remain in the doctor's mind to the grave. Karolov makes his grievances permanent by endlessly rehashing and justifying cruel thoughts. Our grievances are held in place as we rehash them. Grievances are naturally ephemeral when we just stop justifying them. We recognize and release our unkind thoughts or grip them tightly by rehearsing and justifying them. Barry Brownstein says in his book, Bonds That Make Us Free, philosopher C. Terry Warner observes, we participate in the creation of our emotional troubles and deny we've had any part of it, any part in it rather, in regard to our troubling emotions and attitudes, we are our own worst enemies. Warner explains our enemies are not independent of our mind. The truth is that we bind ourselves to them, meaning our enemies, as if by an invisible tether, and we do so by our negative thoughts and feelings. Barry says our minds can make wrong-minded and right-minded decisions. Right-mindedly, Kirilov could have joined Abogan in sharing their common humanity. Both were grieving a profound loss. Taking the wrong-minded path, Kirilov chooses an enemy for life. In meditations, Marcus Aurelius advised if we limited good and bad to our own actions, we'd have no call to treat other people as enemies. Now, those who are committed to their enemies list are eager to shore up allies. In the theory of moral sentiments, Adam Smith cautions, we are not half so anxious that our friends should adopt our friendships as that they should enter into our resentments. So how does this apply to uh, what's going on around us? Well, during COVID, Dr. Fauci, politicians, and their allies used fake news, hateful propaganda threats, and censorship to stir fear and divide Americans— to Dr. Fauci and politicians, people are statistics to be manipulated, coerced, even made an enemy, like the unvaccinated, for instance. To entrepreneurs, people are potential customers to be served. In his essay, of Virtuous Cycle, James Surowiecki explains that capitalism advocates the fair, treat- the fair treatment of people just because they're, well, people. So Barry Brownstein says, look, the human mind can make bitter enemies from whole cloth by cherishing grievances. I think most of us could see that. Human weakness is manna for authoritarians. The more undisciplined our minds, the more power authoritarians get. The wise individual seeking freedom attends to human frailty. Minds can be creative or destructive. And Barry says, be right-minded. Stop justifying grievances. Embrace liberalism. Value voluntary cooperation. As you help others flourish, you will flourish. I've got a link to this in the show notes. Check it out.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: Rapid fire, we are down to the final segment here, so I've got a couple different things I want to share with you. One article, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but uh, I know that housing is a big concern. And listen, I'm in this boat, too. Two years ago, my family and I relocated back to South Central Idaho. And it was at a time when, uh, you know, housing prices were just absolutely through the roof. By the way, they're still astronomically high. But the demand for housing was so high that, uh, you know, people would put a home on the market and it would sell within a matter of hours. Rentals were almost impossible to find. I, I've never seen so many messages of people just, just desperate to find you know a rental, so that they could uh, have a roof over their heads. And in fact, uh, when I announced, uh, when I let people know, hey, uh, my family and I are relocating, and let friends there in the South Central Idaho area know, could you guys keep your eyes open? You know, for for any rentals. The, the most common response I received was good luck. <laughs> it was it was pretty daunting. Now. Because of this, I have been keeping a very close eye on on what's happening with home prices and interest rates. And so far, by the way, the news is not really great. Even though home prices have started to come down, interest rates are high enough that uh, you know what you would have paid uh, you know four hundred fifty thousand dollars for last year may have come down to uh, you know three hundred fifty thousand. But with the interest rates, your payment actually is going to be more. How's that for crazy? I mean, it just. It's, it's a really tough time. And, of course, this is also leading to some problems. And I'm linking an article here about how squatters are taking over homes across the U.S. And more experts are saying that, or some experts, rather, are saying that there's just no end in sight. And the laws differ from state to state, but squatters' rights are a real thing. And once somebody moves in, even if they didn't explicitly sign a rental agreement, you know, a property owner, it can take them months for them to be able to get people out of their property and be able to, once again, have control over that property and either rent it out or live in it themselves. I suspect that this is going to get worse. And, and of course, there, there's always government there to help. Well, why don't we do a rent moratorium? Yes, you people will no longer have to pay rent because things are tough. And, you know, this poor landlord's left holding the, the note and banks saying, hey, we're going to have to foreclose if you can't make your payment. Well, my renters aren't paying their rent. Well, you know, the stupidity is, is just off the charts. And I'm talking on the part of policymakers who would say, you know, yes, you don't have to pay your rent. But, uh, but still leave those property owners, you know, holding the bag and, and, and responsible for paying their mortgage. Scary stuff. So you might want to take a look at that article. Um, maybe it's uh, something that affects you. Maybe not. It's a very interesting trend. And I suspect as the economic difficulties deepen, we're probably going to see more of this kind of thing. Also. This is one I wanted to share with you. What will a cashless society look like? Okay, now I feel like I've been banging the, the drum pretty hard trying to warn people hey, this is not a good thing. G. Ed Griffin's Need to Know News, Need to Know.news, has a great article, just kind of down and dirty, about what it will look like. A cashless society means no cash, zero. It doesn't mean mostly cashless, and you can still use a wee bit of cash here and there. Cashless means fully digital, fully traceable, fully controlled. And the author here says, I think those who support a cashless society aren't fully aware of what they're asking for. Because a cashless society means no more tuckaway cash for those preparing to leave domestic violence. No more purchases off-marketplace unless you want to risk bank transfer fraud. No more garage sales. No more cash donations to hungry homeless people that you pass. No more cash slipped into the hands of a child from their grandparent. No more money in birthday cards. No more piggy banks or tooth fairy for your child. No more selling bits and pieces from your home that you no longer want or need for a bit of cash in return. Less choices of where you purchase based on affordability. And what a cashless society does guarantee is that banks have full control of every single cent you own. Every transaction you make is recorded. All your movements and actions are traceable. Access to your money can be blocked at the click of a button when or if banks need clarification from you, which could take weeks, 100 questions answered, and 500 passwords. If your transactions are deemed in any way questionable by those who create the questions, well, your money will be frozen for your own good. Yeah. The point here is we all need to take off our blinkers. Forget about cash being dirty. Cash has been around for a very, very long time. It gives you control over how you trade with the world. It gives you independence. So what can you do about this? Well, if you are a customer, pay with cash. If you're a shop owner, remove those ridiculous signs that ask people to pay by card. Cash is legal tender. It is our right to pay with cash. Banks are making it increasingly difficult to lodge cash, and it has nothing to do with the virus, So please stop believing everything you hear on TV. Almost every single topic in today's world is tainted with corruption and hidden agendas. Politics and greed is what's wrong with the world, not those who are trying to alert you to the reality. So please pay with cash and please say no to a cashless society while you still have a choice. To me, this is one of the big things to keep an eye on. As you've heard me say, I think it's the biggest decision we're going to have to make in the near future. Are you going to make the right one? I don't know. That's, that's on you. All I know is that the people who are, are taking things seriously and who are trying to, to be prepared and at least have options, they are really looking around and trying to figure, what what can we do? Is crypto going to be the way? Is you know precious metals going to be the way? Is there some other thing, barterable goods, freeze-dried coffee, whatever it may be? And I don't know the the answer, and it it may not be a perfect answer for everybody. I'm not sure this is a one-size-fits-all proposition. I just have to go by that uh, rule of thumb. Tangible assets, things you can actually put your hands on, things that you can physically control, are going to be a safer bet than uh, electrons in a computer or somebody's notes on a ledger somewhere. Just a little something to think about. All right, final article. This is uh, boy this one's kind of a powerful one too. This is from American thinker Josh Klenoff is the author. The worst prison is the one you don't know you're in. Now this is a pretty strong recap of what has been going on with the uh, the whole great reset. And by the way there is some really good news coming out. I don't know if you saw this yesterday. I I don't know if the footage was from yesterday or if it was uh, from an earlier time but I told you that Dutch farmers have actually made a very strong standard or making inroads politically to, to take power from politicians who are trying to seize their farms and otherwise dispossess them of their livelihoods for the sake of, you know, we're trying to fight global climate change. And, and, and this is part of the whole great reset uh, mindset. There was some footage that came out yesterday of uh, riot police in, in the Netherlands um, getting sprayed with manure. Now I know that's, that's not very polite, but uh, Hey, you know, the Dutch farmers have been, uh, Fighting with what's at hand, and I don't know where they got this manure spreader, but wow, I I actually felt sorry for for the shock troops. I felt sorry for the riot cops because they were getting hosed down, and it was it was not pretty. France, holy cow! Have you seen what's been going on in France? Our media has been very very quiet about this. Really, no, everything's great. Look look this way. Look away, citizen. Don't look over there. You know, it's not just the barricades burning in the streets, but people have been rioting. It started over pensions. But yesterday, something remarkable happened, at least in some locations. Riot police took off their helmets and actually joined with the protesters, firefighters as well. It's shifting. And and, and Macron may very well be on his way out of power. Why would people be standing up? Well, it's it has to do a lot with the World Economic Forum and the policies they have been carefully and even not so carefully trying to push and implement on a global scale. So this article from Jack Klinoff talks about who is Klaus Schwab. He gives you the rundown on, on what, uh, what the World Economic Forum is trying to do, how it's trying to create more agile forms of governance, which just means better ways to, to get you under their control. He talks about how they used COVID-19 as a means of of seizing power. And basically what they're trying to do, and this is part of that cashless society, is to build a digital prison that will claim to to, uh, provide safety, security, and convenience. This is a phrase that I think ought ought to stick. It has been called the digital Dachau. As Benjamin Franklin said all those years ago, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Now, I don't care how conspiratorial it sounds, and if you want to say, Brian, you know, you need to get your tinfoil hat loosened a little bit, it's cutting off the blood flow to your brain. Maybe I could very well be wrong. But but something tells me that no, this is this is a legitimate problem, it's a legitimate threat, and it's not something that we ought to be going along with, no matter how convenient it may appear on the surface. I think we're we're being herded into a place where most of our innate rights will be denied. They will be converted to simple privileges that will be either granted or denied by those who hold power. Fewer and fewer people actually in power. And essentially, we will be the ones who will own nothing and be happy, in their words. We will eat the bugs, because that's, uh, you know, sustaining to nature. I don't think they have our best interests in mind. What do you think?